I'm glad you didn't applaud for the uh, anthem, not because it wasn't gorgeous, because sometimes anthems just deserve to be drunk in and enjoyed. So thank you, choir, for that beautiful piece. Did you have a good Thanksgiving? It's my favorite holiday. I think it's something so simple about it, something so focused on the Lord, because who else are we going to thank? And in our case, it's about family and pinochle and a great football game, which was pretty awesome. And, uh, and it's about a table full of earth-toned foods. And I love earth-toned foods. Yes, they're not good for you, but I love them. Except for pumpkin pie. Hate it. Hate pumpkin pie. How many hate pumpkin pie with me? Yes. How many think I'm crazy for hating pumpkin pie? Yeah. It's like caca. Cindy was like a gastronomical choreographer. She was bringing all of these dishes out of the oven in the right order and in the right time and perfectly done. It was awesome. My mom fixed four of her famous pies. She's the best pie baker in the world. And I was turkey boy. It was my job to, uh, to deep fat, put the turkey, cook turkey in our deep fat fryer. You know, you could deep fat fry my shoe and I would like it. That is the ultimate food preparation, right? It is, it is just perfect. It was perfect. My nephew Duncan used the opportunity to ask us each the same question, maybe a question that went around your table. What do you want for Christmas? What do you want for Christmas? Cooper wants an F-150 truck. <laughs> yeah, that's going to happen. <laughs> Cindy, a woman of simple pleasures, she wants C's... Nuts and chews. I want a small visa bill in January. That's what I want for Christmas. What do you want for Christmas? For this Advent, we're going to ask that question of five of the Christmas characters in the Scripture. What do you want for Christmas? And this morning, we're going to ask it of Joseph, that quiet man. He never speaks once in the Scriptures, but whose courage and obedience, think about it, saved the Savior of the world. So let's ask Joseph what he wants for Christmas this morning. Turn with me to Matthew, to our first Christmas story, Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. I know you've heard this story a million times before. Hear it as if you'd never heard it before. Listen with new ears. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel which means God with us. Literally, it means the with us God. 
And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Yeshua. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, would you meet us now in this word? Would you come to us that Jesus might save us anew? We love you. We thank you that you're a God who wants to be with us. And we want to be with you today too. So we welcome you through the power of your word. In Christ's name, amen. I wonder if you've ever thought about it this way. Matthew's Christmas story starts with an apparent act of betrayal. Matthew's Christmas story starts with an apparent act of deep betrayal. Joseph was a, he was a young craftsman from a tiny little town called Galilee. It was a podunk town in Nazareth. He was probably a carpenter, but maybe more than that, a stone worker perhaps. That was what the word conveys. He had a reputation in town. He was the strong, silent type. He didn't talk very much, but he was reputed to be a person of integrity, a person of righteousness, a devout young man. He would be a great catch. And when you got a little town like Nazareth, believe me, the town knew everybody's business. And it was known that for years the plan had been that Joseph was going to marry Mary. Joseph's parents and Mary's parents had already gotten together and they'd made the arrangement. That's how you got married in those days. You didn't marry someone for love. You married someone because your parents said you're going to marry them and you grew in love. By the way, I'm warming to the idea of arranged marriage. (laughs) I'm not too thrilled with what I've seen. Parents, are you with me? I think we should just retake that tradition. We can do better. While Joseph and Mary were kids, their two dads came together and they agreed and they literally would have filled out a contract that included the bride price, the amount that the groom's family would pay the bride's family for the marriage to take place. So it was a done deal. It was a contractual arrangement. And then they just waited for the kids to grow up. And they didn't wait very long, actually, because most marriages took place in the teens in those days. Often the girl was 14 or 15 years old. So it was very young. But as far as society was concerned, if the kids were betrothed or pledged, as we see it in our text today, they were married. They were as good as married. In fact, the only thing they didn't have was sex. But if they were engaged, they were already married. And it was such a big deal. Betrothal was such a big deal that if you broke the betrothal, broke the engagement, it wasn't just a matter of giving back a ring. You actually had to get a divorce you understand? It's a much bigger deal, this engagement, than our engagement is. So when Mary, Joseph's betrothed, the girl that he had planned for years to marry, when she came to him with the news that she was pregnant, can you imagine the sense of humiliation and heartbreak that he experienced in that moment? Some of you can, actually. I won't ask you to raise your hands as I sometimes do. But some of you have experienced this, haven't you? Some of you know very well what it's like to experience this deepest of betrayal. Maybe you found emails, maybe phone calls, maybe you caught the couple, walked in on them. And it is such a wounding, 
humiliating act of betrayal that you wonder if you will ever get over it completely. And in some ways, I don't think you ever do. We live in a culture where sex before marriage, where living together is now viewed as no big deal. Fewer and fewer kids come into my office to get married and tell me proudly that they are still virgins, that they're pure, they're waiting for their marriage night. It's almost passé, old-fashioned. But even in our culture where sexual expression has apparently no limits and we have lost our ability to blush, even for us the idea of sexual infidelity is still reprehensible. So can you imagine what it must have been like then in little Nazareth, in this close-knit community when the news of Mary might have bubbled out? What she did would have been considered not only a betrayal of poor Joseph, but it was a betrayal of their cultural values, their community values. A violation of these deeply held religious convictions. Such a violation, as a matter of fact, that it carried the death penalty. You know that, right? What she had done, what he thought she had done, carried the death penalty. The elders would take her to the nearest precipice, And the community would watch as they would throw her off the cliff. And as she lie broken and bleeding and unconscious below, they would finish the job by the entire community taking stones and throwing them down onto her until she was dead and buried in this pile of rocks. That's how seriously this was taken. It was considered a capital offense. Joseph's honor had been violated by this betrayal and he had every right to demand his satisfaction. Of course, Mary denied it. She came up with some cockamamie story about an angel appearing to her and telling her that she was pregnant miraculously by the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Yeah, right. Who would believe such a thing? But it was an unbelievable disappointment to Joseph because he had always viewed Mary as such a virtuous person. Such a good woman. Good young woman. He could hardly believe it, but as the The pooch began to grow. I mean, his own eyes were his evidence, weren't they? Obviously, when she came up with this story, she was not only an adulteress, she was a liar. and, And by her cultural standards, she deserved to die for this act of betrayal. Here's the problem. Joseph loved her. This was the woman that he had planned to spend his life with. He had looked forward to this day for many years. He had always respected her. He may have the right to demand her death, but as hurt and as angry as he was, he just couldn't bring himself to do it. He was a good man, Joseph. He was a righteous man. And so broken-hearted Joseph decided just to divorce her. He would quietly make the arrangements that he needed to make. He would sign the papers. She could sneak off and have her baby somewhere. She could hide from her shame and he would endure his. But after a while, the whispers and the finger pointing would stop and his mom and dad might make an arrangement with a different family and he would have a a wife and he would live his life. Live his life without that embarrassment called Mary. And really, divorce could hardly have been easier at the time. If in Jesus' time, if a man decided he didn't want to be married anymore, do you know what he had to do? He had to go to his wife and say, I divorce you, I divorce you, 
I divorce you. And it was done. You don't like the fact that crow's feet are starting to appear on your wife's older face? I divorce you. I divorce you. I divorce you. She's not as frisky in bed as you would prefer. I divorce you. I divorce you. I divorce you. She uses too much salt when she cooks. I divorce you. I divorce you. I divorce you. We laugh, but that is literally the case. That was all that was required to have a divorce take place. Now, when Jesus was a grown man, he was going to condemn this attitude, this easy divorce, this easy violation of a covenant that God had made between a man and a woman. He condemned it. But Jesus wasn't a grown man. He wasn't a preacher. Jesus was a fetus inside the woman that Joseph was determined to quietly divorce. He didn't have too much to say at this point. Joseph didn't want to kill her. Joseph didn't want to humiliate her. They would just slip down to Las Vegas, get their quickie divorce, and get on with life. It seemed so reasonable, so right. Everyone would understand it. The problem is it wasn't okay with God. It wasn't okay with God. Even though society would agree, even though Joseph was within his rights to get his quickie, quiet divorce, God had something else in mind. Something that was radical. Something that was countercultural. Something that was unbelievable. God was going to take this apparent betrayal and humiliation and he was going to redeem it. He would draw them together and he would restore their covenant to each other and he would bless their union in a way that would bless eternity, that would bless you. So one night, Joseph fell asleep and while he was asleep, an angel appeared to him, the same cockamamie angel that appeared to Mary. And this angel said to him, Listen, she's telling you the truth. Don't be afraid to take her as your wife. She has not been unfaithful to you. She is indeed pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit, though she has slept with no man. You take this woman to be your wife. And you raise this boy to be your own. And when he is born, you will name him Jesus, which means, you know what it means? Yahweh saves. For he will save his people from their sin. And can you imagine the relief that Joseph felt when he woke up? And you could almost see him rushing out of the door to Mary's house and finding her and embracing her. And together they began again to plan, to lay the plans for the rest of their life together. As I said at the beginning, the Christmas story starts with the deepest betrayal a human being can experience. What is it that Joseph wanted for Christmas? A divorce. He wanted to quietly set aside his marriage and get on with his life. I wonder here how many here this morning in their hearts of hearts want the same thing. Beloved, we live in a culture of quick and quiet divorce. And it may not be as easy as saying, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, but almost. And what is different about this is that Joseph and Mary lived in a community that disapproved of divorce. Theirs was a society built on the sacred commitment, the covenant between a man and a woman, and and built upon the family. A society that expected people to keep their wedding vows and endure hard times and, and spend their whole lives together. Our community expects no such thing. Our culture says, if it doesn't work out, too bad. 
get divorced and try again. And what is even more tragic is even the church in America treats divorce as a do-over. Our own church has been rocked this year by the scourge of divorce. And I see you nodding your heads. You know what I'm talking about. It has been so painful. It is so prevalent, so shocking and disappointing that if you are struggling in your marriage right now quietly, you might just be tempted to toss in the towel, to give up, to give, get, get a divorce just like everyone else is doing. I want to give you hope. I want to encourage you not to do that. I want to encourage you to hold on for God's better thing. There's a simple but profound truth in the story of Joseph that it could transform your your struggling marriage. And here it is. Listen to God's voice on this and then obey him. If your marriage is struggling, there will be a lot of voices that are urging you to just chuck it in and start over. Voices on TV, voices of friends, voices of an attorney, maybe even supposedly Christian voices. And certainly the voice in your own head is going to be saying, this is hard, this seems hopeless, this seems unfair, I will never be happy, I deserve better than this. I beg you, please, will you try to shut out those voices? And will you listen instead to the only voice that matters? The voice of the one who formed your marriage in the first place. The voice of the one and only who can redeem your marriage and who longs to do so. There may be times when God does say, I want you out of that marriage. It is abusive and it is unsafe. Although that language, I dare say, has been cheapened and made meaningless by overuse. If everything is unsafe, nothing is unsafe. If everything is abuse, nothing is abuse. But generally, God has made his opinion known on the subject. In Malachi 2, verse 16, God says it as tersely as you could say it. Here it is. I hate divorce. I hate divorce. When you took your vows before God, He sealed you in a relationship He intended would last a lifetime. God longs for you to have a marriage that doesn't just survive, but thrives, is life-giving. And the most important thing you can do for struggling marriage is to listen to God's voice before you listen to anyone else's voice, to listen to the voice of God and believe Him and obey Him. Because that is exactly what Joseph did. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. So did that mean that suddenly everything was easy? No. Did that mean suddenly an end to the whispers of accusation? No. Did that mean there would never be any more rough times? I guarantee you as he was hauling his little family from Palestine to Egypt to avoid that murderous Herod, it was rough. No, there would be rough times in their future. But Joseph listened and he obeyed and he was committed to his marriage, the sanctity of it. 
And it placed him right in the heart of God's will for their life together. And God redeemed what seemed certain to be an absolute disaster. May I just say this, that's what God can do if we are willing to silence the voices of quick and quiet divorce. There must be, there must be some who will rise up and say no to this plague. You might reply, well, I've heard that Christians divorce at the same rate as non-Christians. What difference does it make? It doesn't seem to make any difference whether you listen to God or not. Have you heard that? I know you have because you've actually heard it from me. Well, I repent because I've looked into this more carefully. That is bad statistics. The most recent research, according to a book by a Harvard-trained researcher not a believer as far as I know, the book is Surprising Secrets of Highly Happy Marriages, says that Christian couples who practice their faith together are 50% less likely to get a divorce than non-Christians. That is cause for celebration. Christian couples who practice their faith together are 50% less likely to get a divorce than non-Christians. Now notice I say those who practice their faith, and this is the key. Because they have found that nominal Christians, those who say the name of Jesus, who claim to be Christians, but who never read the word, never pray, never go to church together, never give, never serve Christ in any way, nominal Christians actually appear to have a higher rate of divorce than average. Why would that be? Perhaps because they've become used to pretending. They are pretending that they are followers of Christ. They are pretending that they're members of a church. They are pretending that they have a happy marriage. And finally, they get tired of pretending and chuck it all. But the good news is that the couples who really live out their Christian life, in other words, those who who listen for God's voice together and do what He tells them, are more than twice as likely to have lifelong, life-giving, happy marriages. And may I say this as well. There's no such thing as a quiet divorce. There just isn't. No matter how civilly you try to go about it, the pain and the regret and the brokenness will cry out in your life and in the lives of your children for the rest of your lives. You may have good reason to want to end your marriage. You may feel rightly betrayed and abandoned. Certainly, Joseph had a reason to quietly divorce Mary. And it seemed impossible to him that his present circumstances could turn out to be anything but disastrous. And yet Joseph chose to listen to God and believe that God could redeem this impossible, scandalous situation and he used it for his perfect purposes. And God still can. I am a witness to you that a Christ-centered, committed marriage where each partner champions the other is the most wonderful life-giving gift in the world. And there are couples around this sanctuary, and I see them, and I know who you are. Couples who have been married for 40 and 50 and 60, and yes, almost 70 years, who would declare to you the same thing. Am I right, Ray and Patty Payne? It's better today than than almost 70 years ago when you got married. Marriage can be wonderful. I don't want this to be a word of condemnation. Because I know there are many in this church who have gone through the pain of divorce. 
Here's the good news for you today. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Some churches treat it that way. It is not the unforgivable sin. God can forgive and heal and redeem the life and bring new life to a new couple. Thank God. And I see heads that are shaking out there to that too. Thank God for that. Those who are truly repentant and desire to be his people, God will redeem them. I don't want to pile on. I want you to experience God's grace and hope in that. But my message is really for those of you who are teetering. Those who are teetering, who like Joseph are are toying with the idea of divorce because you consider it to be the panacea for your problems. I beg you, listen for the voice of God. Confess to each other and to him. Seek forgiveness. Get counseling. Come to our marriage conference in January. Don't give up. God's desire is not just that your marriage would limp along, but your marriage would survive and thrive. And he can do this seemingly impossible thing even if no one else can. I do wonder, though, if this story doesn't take us beyond the topic of marriage. Joseph thought he had two options. Have Mary murdered or quietly divorce her. And he put all his hopes and and his future in in, in the one choice, he decided to live the rest of his life the best he could under the circumstances. And if he had, he would have been limiting God in the process. Joseph thought that he was just going to have to get by for the rest of his days. And God had so much more in store for him. Every one of us has devastating, broken places in our lives. And could it be possible that God has more in store for us, whether it is our marriage or anything else? What if by taking the easy way out, by doing the practical thing that society tells us to do, what if we are actually resigning ourselves to a lesser life, a second-rate life? What would happen to us if we expected God to show up in the midst of our most dire circumstances with more possibilities than we could ever dream possible? What if this second-rate thing that we're willing to settle for isn't even close to the blessing that God intends for us. God started the Christmas story with what appeared to be heartbreak. And it ends in redemption. God wants to do the same thing in your life today. Wherever you find heartbreak, humiliation, betrayal, brokenness, God wants to step in and say, you know, I have something better for you. You may be ready to take the easy way out, the way that the society would say, the way that all the voices are telling you to take. I'm telling you, listen to me. And I will take you to a place of redemption and wholeness and blessing, the likes of which you could ever, never imagine. I long for this to be a place where that is true. I long for this to be a community within the community where something different occurs where hope is present, where the rest of the world says no hope is not possible, where commitment stands when everyone else says run away, when forgiveness is possible, when the world says don't you dare let him off the hook, don't you dare let her off the hook. Surely this must be a place that is different. I long for us to be that place of refuge, that place of hope. And it's only going to happen if we hear the voice of God speaking into our lives and we obey. 
So I want to ask us to pray right now. Would you close your eyes? If you are here with your spouse, would you take their hand? First of all, God, I pray for those who have experienced the betrayal that we spoke of today. I pray for those who have been abandoned, humiliated, who know deeply, in the deepest part of their soul, what Joseph was feeling that that day. God, would you bring your healing, your peace, and yes, your forgiveness. Would you lift from every soul the, the scourge of bitterness that causes them to hold and to replay again and again the story of their pain? Would you set them free? For those who have been divorced and who sit hard under this word, God, would you remind them that your grace covers all and that there's life beyond divorce, there's life beyond this brokenness. And would you help us to receive the grace that is ours in Jesus? Thank you for that. But Lord, especially for those couples that are here today, for those couples that are good, God, I pray that they would squeeze each other's hand right now as a reminder of the covenant they made so long ago. They will squeeze each other's hand as a reminder of of the gift that they have been to each other through hard and good times, through pain and loss and delight. They have stood together and they have grown and grown in love. Thank you for what they have. Thank you that you have lived out in them the model of marriage and covenant community that you long for all to experience. Bless them. Bless every day that it might be better than the last. And then, Lord, I pray for the the couple that are holding hands reluctantly right now or maybe couldn't even bring themselves to take each other's hand because it seems so phony. The voices in their heads, the voices in their society, the voices in their family, the voices in their circles of friends are saying, just chuck it, give up, throw it away, start over, you can do better. God, I beg you that your word would speak to their hearts today to believe that you are possible to, it is possible for you to do something more, something great, something miraculous. I pray that they can both hear your word and, like Joseph, obey. Take the next step. Seek counsel. Seek forgiveness. Ask for forgiveness. Offer, for, offer repentance. Whatever the step would be, Lord. May your spirit stir them to take that courageous next step as Joseph did. He, he rose up. He took her home to, his, to be his wife. May we rise up in obedience and take steps that will defy the voices of our culture and say, no, we will stand for what God calls us to. God, save marriages. And don't just save them. Cause them to thrive. So much so that the community, the world will look to this place and say, well, that is someplace that's different. Something special is happening there. I need more of that. Lord, this is what I pray. And I ask that your Holy Spirit would do that work. In Jesus' name, amen.